It is a privilege for me to be here at the Master's College and share this time with you. John has put together what he calls a President's Council, and there are a number of us pastors here who you've been hearing from who are privileged to be part of that, and when I arrived I found out that I think I'm the only one who has not been part of the ministry here associated with Grace Church or the college or the seminary in some way. When I found that out, it was naturally a source of pride, and I began to think, well, why would John invite me? Well, he's heard about my theological insights, my tremendous ability to communicate, my wisdom. Then one of the men that are here said to me, you know why John invited you? Well, I didn't want to tell him, so I thought I'll be humble and let him tell me. So he said uh, he wanted another old guy here like himself. <laughs> uh, yeah. so I appreciated that. Then he, uh, I thought that was enough. And he says, you know, we were sitting at the council meeting the other day and you happened to be sitting on the end down there. John was sitting up the head of the table. He says, I looked and I said, there it is, the two old crusts on each end of the loaf. Uh, oh. I, I just love the way the Lord reminds us of what we are and uh, who we are. I am excited about the privilege of representing Jesus Christ. What an honor to know the living God, to be called to present the glorious salvation that He has entrusted to us. Vessels of clay. So that when we present the glorious truth of redemption to fallen man and lives are transformed, all the glory, all the honor, all the credit for all that's done goes to Him and how I praise Him for it. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. You know, I feel a tie with Grace, not with Grace, uh, Grace Church, but now with Master's seminary and master's college because of the young people and young men that are studying at the seminary, some of our young people who have been at the college here, Buddy Stride is here now. Our son is at the uh, seminary studying and uh, a month ago, by the Lord's grace and the Lord's leading, uh, he married a young lady who is a student here at master's college. And so it's a privilege for me, being a resident of Nebraska, to feel a strong tie through our family to both the ministry of the college and the seminary in these days. Romans chapter 1. I want to talk with you about just the beginnings of the gospel. I'm concerned that as the church of Jesus Christ loses its way in the world, that we begin to move away from the basics. And I need to remind myself of that fact in my own ministry. The danger is, as I think back to the 70s and the days when people were coming early, early to find a seat and just sitting in awe as we opened the Scripture and amazed that we could understand and know what God has said, that I reflect back and say they're not breaking down the doors to get in for Bible teaching in the same way in these days. Therefore, maybe I better adjust my ministry because I'm sure I can get a better crowd with more enthusiasm if I turn away from a ministry of the Word to a ministry that includes the Word but is absorbed in other things. And that's happening in our presentation of the Gospel to a lost world as well. We become intimidated by what, by what we know the world does not want to hear. 
and we begin to tell them what they want to hear and put the gospel in such a context that they are responding, making decisions, making commitments that have nothing to do with the salvation of their soul. And they are worse off afterwards than before. And I fear that we become more and more like the Pharisees who would traverse over all the world to make one convert. And after they had done it, he was twice the convert of hell, not of heaven. For us to be effective, effective before God by being faithful and honoring him, our commitment to a lost world must flow out of a commitment to be faithful to the God who has called us to himself. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul begins by saying, Paul, a bondservant of Christ, Jesus, called an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul saw his life as committed by the call of God to the gospel of God, a ministry of the truth of God concerning salvation and his son to be carried to a lost world. This gospel promised in the Old Testament prophets, verse 3, centers in his son, Jesus Christ. The one who was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. Since that's the call of God upon Paul, his desire in coming to Rome centers in one thing. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome also. And the gospel of God becomes the theme of this greatest theological treatise ever written. The unfolding of God's gospel. And it begins where we must begin if we're going to be faithful in our commitment to a lost world in bringing them the truth of God. It begins with the fallen state of all humanity. Now, the danger is when we're confronted with the sinfulness of man, we sit back, yawn within, and say, you know, this is basics. I know this. Of course I know this. I know man is sinful. Well, we know it on one level and in one sense, but in the implementing of it, in the living of it, I fear we've lost sight of it. Let me jump ahead to the doctrine of sanctification in Romans 6, 7, and 8. The church has totally abandon the biblical doctrine of sanctification today. We're going to all kind of counselors, getting all kind of information for how we ought to live the Christian life, how we ought to deal with the issue of sin. We fail to understand we died with Christ. That's God's solution. Now live it out. There is no other way to deal with sin. Recognize you died with Christ. We fail to understand how serious sin is. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul unfolds the reality of man's condemned state because of his sinful condition. Look at verse 18. He says, The wrath of God, and he begins with four, and we're going to circle back around to pick up what uh, precedes that four in a moment. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The beginning point for us, if we're to have a biblical commitment 
to a lost world is to recognize we are dealing with a world that is living under the wrath of God. The world has suppressed the truth, has rejected the living God, and God has responded in wrath. We often focus on the future dimension of wrath, the climax of the wrath, which is the lot of the unbeliever, an eternal hell. And that certainly is the most frightening dimension. But the reality of the matter is the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And fallen man is living under the judgment of God today that will climax in sentencing to an eternal hell. They suppress the truth because God has revealed himself. The men sang just a moment ago of how we see God in the creation He has made. And that's the point in verses 19 and 20. As you look around the world, all creation declares the power, the wisdom, the goodness of the God who made it all. But fallen man rejects that revelation. That's why we say there is enough revelation in creation to condemn a man, but not to save a man. Because the revelation of creation demonstrates that man rejects God and will have nothing to do with Him. So at the end of verse 20, we are told they are without excuse. We're not dealing with innocent people. We're dealing with people who don't understand on the level that I'm talking about. We are dealing with men and women who God says have rejected Him who suppress and hold the truth down because they don't want to know what it says. They don't want to know the living God. They don't want to be responsible to Him. So they reject the truth. Isn't it amazing with the passing of time down through the centuries, with all that man has come to learn about the wonder of creation, the magnitude of the universes, the intricacy of this body and all the minutia that goes on so that it can function has not drawn him to be in awe and recognize what a God must have brought it into existence. It seems that the more clearly that revelation is displayed, the more adamant and planted fallen man becomes in his rejection of God. And God says, those who have rejected him now are without excuse and under his wrath. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, not knew in the salvation sense, but knew in the sense of this context. They know him. They know there's a God, even though they won't acknowledge it, even though they won't admit it, even though they will not submit to him. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. We see here, man in his inner parts is corrupted and darkened by sin. They became futile, purposeless, meaningless in their thoughts. Their life has become empty without purpose, without meaning, because they have rejected God. Their foolish heart was darkened. Their heart referring to the inner person. Maybe think of it here in this context of their mind. We'll see as it unfolds. They're darkened 
in the area of their minds. They have no ability to perceive or understand spiritual reality. You see, God is not in a situation where he has to say, well, I'll give you more. Well, if he gave me more, I might respond. No. We respond by rejecting what he has given, and we are in a darkened, blackened state as regards spiritual reality. We sit and scratch our head and say, uh, what's wrong with the world today? This is where I think we've lost sight of the reality of sin. We say, how can people do this? It makes no sense just on the human level. They are self-destructing. They're destroying their families. That doesn't make sense, even taking spiritual matters out of it. But they live in a darkened, uh, darkened world. Purposeless. They understand nothing. They are in futility. Professing to be wise, they became foolish. Fools. You know, there's no lack. Uh, you have universities here. We have the University of Nebraska on our doorstep. And there's no lack of proclamation of wisdom there. Now, they think they know. They sit back with their intellectual arrogance and pride and say, well, you know, you might believe that. But uh, in effect, you know, that's from a darkened day and the darkened ages. Uh, we know more today. The reality is they have become fools. They exchanged the glory of God, of the incorruptible God, for an image in the form of corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Now, an unfolding is going to go on, a development. A man who has been exposed to the revelation of God, as all man has, he has rejected that revelation. He lives now in darkness and blindness and futility. He still claims to be wise. And he exchanges the glory of the incorruptible God for the creation which is corruptible. And honors and exalts what God has created, not because it is a reflection of God, but ultimately he ends up worshiping himself. They are without knowledge. You know what Jeremiah said? Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 14. Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Same kind of context in Jeremiah 10 as we're talking about here. Those who have rejected God. So don't be surprised. We ought not to sit and wring our hands and say, what is happening in the world today? What is happening in the world today is men and women who have rejected the living God and refused to have Him have any part in their life are now living out the results and consequences of that decision. Look at verse 30, uh, 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. And as you're aware, in this section, three times God says God gave them over. Verse 24, God gave them over to impurity. Verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. And verse 28... God gave them over to a depraved mind. Now, I want you to see the connection here. God has revealed himself. Man has rejected God. Therefore, God turns man over in judgment to his own sin and lustful desires. 
Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of God and worshipped the creation. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. You note the connection between idolatry and immorality. When men and women reject God, then they come under the judgment of God and the result is they become consumed by their lustful desires. Word for impurity here is a word that uh, is used in the context of sexual impurity, immorality. God gave them over to impurity and their bodies are dishonored. You know, God has created man and woman. He has created and brought into existence, if you will, the marriage relationship. And in that relationship, sex is honorable before God. But man has corrupted because of his rejection of God. Now, man has no choice in this, in that sense. He is under the judgment of God. He chooses he will not have God, and he becomes consumed by his sin. Now, he's doing what he wants, but the judgment of God is to give him over to what he wants. So, in reality, man is living under the judgment of God, and the reflection of that is he's consumed by his sin. What in the world is happening with all the impurity in the world today? We are seeing the results and outpouring of a world that has rejected God. What is happening in our own country? We are seeing the evidence of a nation, the people of this nation, who have rejected God, who are unwilling to have God as their God. Verse 25, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. For this reason... You know the connection. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. God gave them over to impurity. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. God gave them over, verse 26, to degrading passions. To degrading passions. When you exchange God, if you will, for something else, as your object of worship, of your, the object of your attention and affections, if you will, then that begins to consume you. God places you under judgment, if you will, and you get what you wanted. You didn't want Him, you wanted your lusts. You didn't want Him, you wanted your selfish desires. God, in His wrath and judgment, turns man over to his selfish desires and lusts. Now, the point in this, and we're going into homosexuality. I was talking with Ken Sorrells at lunch yesterday, professor of theology at the Master's Seminary. He's saying, I believe that one of the major issues that is going to be uh, attacking the church in the coming days is the issue of homosexuality. I know you've experienced some of that at Grace Church. And we have had the queer nation pick at us and attend our services. And that come in your face. You must accept our sin or we will make life miserable for you. Now, the danger is we get caught up in trying to explain to people why you shouldn't be involved in homosexuality. 
We try to get them to stop their perverted lifestyle. But you know what I need to recognize in light of Romans chapter 1 is God never called us as His children to clean up the world and make it a better place to live. In fact, when we do that, it is the denial of the power of sin and the judgment of God that is taking place in lives. I have to see what is going on and this outpouring of a cesspool, pardon the analogy, of filth today in the moral area is a result or a symptom of the disease of the heart that is depraved and desperately wicked above all things. Hearts that have rejected God and now are living under judgment consumed by their sin. So the women exchange the natural function. The natural function is the function God created to take place for a man and a woman. We know what happens. Everything gets turned around because of sin. We see this in every area. The role of men and women. God says the man is to lead. The woman is to support him. Sin comes into the picture. The man doesn't want to take his responsibility and lead, but the woman is ready to do it. God says sex is fine in marriage. I created you for a relationship as a husband and wife and the expression of your love and oneness in a physical way in the sexual relationship. man says, I want sex, but I don't want it in marriage. Why? We always want the opposite of what God says is right when we've rejected Him and want our sin. So is it any wonder that when God says the natural relationship is the man and the woman, that now we see a tide and even a president coming in who will use his influence and power to make the unnatural more acceptable? We sit back and wring our hand and say, oh, what is happening to our society? What do you mean what is happening to our society? That we deluded ourselves into thinking that all these people were Christians? No, but it sure was more comfortable when they didn't manifest their depravity so openly. But maybe this will bring us around to what Dan talked about, to more seriousness on our part as believers to recognize that in their depravity, they need the gospel. The men are the same way as the women. The depravity has consumed men and women alike. Homosexuality is nothing new. We get concerned about the position our future president is going to take on this issue. Reading uh, some material on this, and it said that the fir- 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were themselves openly homosexual. In fact, very difficult to read about the lives of these men without feeling like you're polluting yourself. We have a leader for our country coming in who is supportive of it, but at least we can be thankful before God that he's bringing his wife, not Charlie or Bill, to live with him in the White House. All right, I don't preach politics, uh, but this is part of Romans 1. (laughs) You know what's happening at the end of verse 27. They are receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. You see, they have rejected God. It is fitting that God give them over to what they want and allow their sin to so consume them. And the more they're consumed by it, what? The more they pursue it. The more they want of it. That's a fitting judgment. 
So I don't want to apply to the homosexual who uh, I have opportunity to talk to that if you'd give up your homosexuality, you would be more pleasing to God. What you would be is a sinner who is in rebellion against God on his way to an eternal hell who doesn't practice homosexuality. You are no closer to God, no more acceptable to God if you try to clean up your life because all of our righteousnesses are as polluted, filthy, menstrual rags, Isaiah says. So I don't want to imply to him that you can be more acceptable to God if you'll quit your sinful practice in this area. You'll be just as much the enemy of God if you stop practicing homosexuality as you are today. Because the issue is your rebellion against God. And that rebellion against God is just manifesting itself in this way as well as a multitude of other ways. It's amazing how comfortable we can be as Christians with uh, the good, quote, moral, upstanding uh, businessman that we have contact with who seems to be a good family man, but he has no interest in the things of God. His pride consumes him. His life is built around himself. But we don't see, feel the same revulsion for that pride that spits in the eye of God as we do to someone who does some of the dirty sins that we find so repulsive and distasteful. Now, I do want to clarify that I believe even the unregenerate man has a better life, humanly speaking, when he lives it in obedience to the standards that God has set down. But that moves him no closer to heaven because he's in rebellion against the living God and has rejected him. Verse 28, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Depraved mind. A mind that is unapproved, that has failed the test, and so is worthless, depraved. It cannot be used for the purposes and plans of God. So is not the unbeliever characterized, as Paul will quote later in chapter 3, as someone who never does good in the eyes of God? He's totally corrupted. There's none that does good. No, not even one. And I don't know how it is in your area, but at least when I have the opportunity in uh, Lincoln to talk to someone who is openly involved in a sinful practice, I have a clear area to be able to focus on with Scripture. Most difficult people that I have to deal with are the self-righteous, good people. I had a man who attended our congregation for years, and I could never get over the fact that he was as good, humanly speaking, as any believer I knew. And he couldn't get over that either. But I tell you, he was as proud and as self-centered and was as closed to bowing before Almighty God and humbling himself as a sinner needing the grace of God as anyone you would ever meet. God gave them over to a depraved mind, a worthless mind, and then here you have just a listing of 21 things, and we won't go through that. But we have to at least read it. I won't make any comments except maybe on one. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Now, no, that's a judgment of God. Why is the unbeliever doing what he does? He's under the judgment of God. I see, think we are seeing as a nation more clearly the judgment of God being manifested on a people 
who have had more clear exposure to the revelation of our God than others may have been privileged to have. They are filled. You've got to underline that. Being filled. This is what fills the unbeliever. He says, full of, later on in verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, malice. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. We won't stop there. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give heartily approval to those who practice them. Isn't this a mixed list? You know, I go through some of these uh, things here and I say, well, I live with that and accept that relatively easily. Uh, Greed, well, you know, we live in a greedy society and uh, that's not, you know, when's the last time you had a church discipline case for greed? You know, is that a disciplinable offense? Well, Paul did say, uh, if any so-called brother's guilty of covetousness, you're not to have anything to do with him in a context of disobedience. But I want to be honest, I'm not putting you down. I can't give you any list of people who've been uh, disciplined for greed at Indian Hills. Uh, We never had one. Uh, We've picked out some of the really bad ones here, though. And let me tell you, we've nailed them to the wall. And rightly so. I'm not saying, well, since we don't do them all, or maybe all of them are not as clear, we oughtn't to do any of them. The point is, I don't want to develop a thinking 